0: Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast, brought to you by Agthentic. I'm Sarah Nollette. On this episode, we meet a woman who is not afraid to shine a light on some controversial topics in agriculture, even when she offends people along the way. Sarah Mock has spent her entire career involved in ag, from working in high-profile ag tech startups to, more recently, reporting on ag policy and rural issues in D.C. We talk in ag
1: a lot about why people don't understand enough about farming or why we have to tell the story of American agriculture so much. And like, it just doesn't seem like it's occurred to enough people maybe that maybe it's because like, we're not telling the authentic story. And it's not because consumers are stupid that they don't understand. It's because they know a fake story when they hear one.
0: Just recently, Sarah set off a Twitter firestorm after writing an article asserting that all farming is exploitative to its workers, the land, plants and animals, and even farmers and their families. Her outspoken critiques of the industry have led some to believe that she is anti-farming or even hates ag, but this couldn't be further from the truth. Sarah makes the point that business 101 for any other industry is that the customer is always right. She's concerned that farmers are missing out on new opportunities in ag tech, innovation, and sustainability because the ag industry is fixated on defending its current practices rather than listening to consumers or engaging in frank and open conversations, especially with people whose perspectives don't come from inside agriculture. Sarah's passion for ag began growing up on her family's farm.
1: So I grew up on a farm in Wyoming. What I did not know at the time was, is what most people would call a hobby farm. Less than five acres, we grew you know, a big market garden and raised market poultry. And I had a dairy goat herd and we raised lambs. I mean, I lived in Wyoming, so there were like huge cattle ranches, like 20,000 acre cattle ranches. But like in terms of any kind of small scale production, like we were as big as anyone or as small as anyone. So I thought I grew up on a farm. I definitely had that impression of my own childhood, but um, it wasn't until I got involved in the agriculture industry after college that I realized that other people might not think of it that way. But yeah, where I grew up, you know, I spent my school years waking up at like 530 in the morning to milk goats before school and like deliver the milk to my neighbors who bought it like in mason jars for a dollar from me. And, you know, I built, I had to do like the, the business side, I had to do record keeping, I had to do all of the small businessy farm stuff that 4-HFFA kids are supposed to do,
0: which was really exciting. For listeners who might not know, the FFA, or Future Farmers of America, is a 100-year-old ag education program for youth in America that currently has 6 million active participants. So what Sarah is basically saying is that she had the full American farm kid experience, even if the farm she grew up on was small and not really her family's main source of income. That was a thing I was
1: doing as a kid. My parents both worked off-farm. So it was 100% a hobby for them. It was probably a giant cash hole. I would imagine. And it certainly like cost my family a lot. So I, that was apparent to me, but, but it was fun and we liked it. And I thought that's what farming was. So I didn't have any concept of that not being the right way. Yes. Um, So then I, I, I definitely left Wyoming and left high school thinking, you know, farming is interesting and it's cool. And I, I did it growing up, but it's kind of pastoral and it's backwards and it it doesn't make sense to me. So I was going to go off to college and do something more important. Um, And it was, you know, midway through college when I was at Georgetown and studying international affairs and all my classmates were obsessed with kind of the Arab Spring and things that were happening in in global geopolitics. And I was that annoying girl that raised their hand in every class to say, you know, there would be no Syrian civil war if there hadn't been an agricultural collapse in Syria in 2008. And there would be no Arab Spring if bread prices hadn't spiked in, in Egypt and throughout the region. So, you know, if we could just figure out agricultural development, we actually wouldn't need all this expertise in in global geopolitics. And I quickly found some professors who were sympathetic to my plight, but were like, yeah, Georgetown's not actually the right school for you to be at, to be learning that stuff. So I was kind of encouraged to go abroad uh, where I I actually went abroad for a year and went to I spent six months in South Africa, six months in India, six weeks at the end of that in Burkina Faso in West Africa and uh, actually a little bit of time at the beginning in Haiti doing a, a different project but got to do got to study food science and urban agriculture in South Africa and do organic agricultural extension work in India and really got exposure to kind of the global ag picture and thought I wanted to do agricultural development or work kind of in the international agriculture space and basically just slowly was disillusioned throughout that year abroad from the idea that a white girl from Wyoming could do any of that work meaningfully. What do you was- mean by that? <laughs> so basically, I think the, the most important lesson I learned trying to work in agricultural development. So in, in Haiti, I did a, a solar kind of social impact project that was like an exclusive failure. It just like did not work at all. We partnered with an NGO that was ineffective and didn't have a good relationship with the community. We focused with a business that never delivered the technology. We had a partnership with a community that actually like did not want to really be in partnership with us. Um, And we were, we were college kids and we didn't really have the the capacity to make this a a long-term sustainable project. So I basically like, you know got disillusioned from the idea that social impact in a in a development setting was impactful then i went to south africa and worked with a uh, academic institution while they built an urban garden in or an urban farm in a local township and you know saw the students getting phd's in this program had never some of them had like only ever visited the township like two or three times in a five year period where they were <laughs> earning their phd as like studying this community and kind of got disabused of the idea that academics or, or you know study is a is a meaningful way to engage with the community and actually learn what it it needs and develop in that way. When I was in India, I actually worked with an NGO and a governmental organization to provide research and backing to encourage some use of local species and more indigenous plants and animals as part of local agricultural practices but basically found that like the local NGO that I was working with like was really invested in a really specific outcome and didn't actually want to know what was best for the farmers they just wanted to get some research to justify their position so i was like oh god
0: government and nonprofits are not doing good work either The final point of disillusionment with ag development work was when Sarah worked with a community of entrepreneurs in Burkina Faso who had invented products that were recognized by the World Bank. But unfortunately, even winning a major international prize wasn't enough to ensure simple things like IP protection.
1: They returned to their country, hoping to, you know, expecting that the World Bank was going to follow up and provide them this intellectual property protection that they had promised. And then the World Bank did not do that. So basically, you know, I, I worked with an entrepreneur who had invented a, a piece of technology to transport small amounts of agricultural. It was basically like a three wheeled motorcycle that had like a wagon attached to the back that was like very specifically kind of regionally relevant for people. And you can buy his, his technology, his innovation in Burkina Faso. It's made by a Chinese company now. It, which is just like, I was just like, oh God, like this is like the perfect example of how we just like hang everyone out to dry. Like all the development work we're doing is not actually working. It's just like performative, basically. It's it's yeah. just like being in the world and pretending like we're doing all these great things and putting on events and giving nice speeches and then just like throwing people to the wolves and, and stealing their ideas and ransacking their communities. And just like, basically I came back from my year abroad and I was like, oh God, if there's anything that I can do to help, you know, global farmers and to, to meaningfully contribute to international agricultural development, it's fix some of the problems of American agriculture because we export them every day wholesale without asking whether anyone wants them or not. And they're like the exact problems that we have in America and that are quite advanced in in America get exported, you know, all around the world. And, and like, frankly, kind of like forced upon people whether they want them or not, because the narrative is that American agriculture is like the peak of of agriculture in the world and that anyone would be happy to to produce in the way that we do, regardless of whether that would actually be a good solution for them.
0: When you came back, did you have an idea of like which challenges in the states you'd tackle or or how you tackle <sighs> them? Or did that kind of come about through more learning or or more time in at Georgetown?
1: Yeah, I actually, so I came back and was like, okay, of all the people that I met abroad, who was doing the best work? And the conclusion I reached was like, it was entrepreneurs, people who actually live and work and like live and breathe their community and are on the ground and see the problems and aren't trying to give away a solution for free, aren't trying to, you know, raise grant money to do these things. It's people who are in business, in partnership with their communities and and trying to solve these problems on the ground and have kind of a financial incentive to do that. So I basically came back to Georgetown and I was like, well, I guess it's Silicon Valley for me <laughs> because that's where the entrepreneurs live in America. So I, I literally just started, you know, I remember the day I was sitting around the table with my uh, apartment mates while they were all putting in applications to work for, you know, the major consulting firms and the major finance firms. I was just like, I was sitting there with them and I wanted to do something too, but they, but I, but I wasn't, I didn't want to apply to any of those things. So I basically just like went on LinkedIn and started cold emailing people and just like finding CEOs of, of ag tech startups that I thought were interesting and just like, just like sending them cold email LinkedIn requests and just being like, hi, I think you're really interesting. Like, would you like to grab coffee or would you like to chat for 15 minutes on the phone? And in that year, probably like eight, eight or nine month period, I probably talked to 60 to 80 startup CEOs from kind of all across the space, you know, everything from the folks at Robot to You know, people who are working in seed technology to people who are working in in the software space and and data science, all the way to kind of the food side. So, yeah, it was it was a big endeavor. I cast like the widest possible net and was basically just like, well, someone I talk to is eventually going to think I'm interesting. Right. And maybe (laughs) hire me.
0: Did, uh, did you, in having those 60 or 80 conversations, did you A, still believe in entrepreneurs in the private sector as, as the place to be? And, and B, kind of any insights about like where, yeah, how did you end up where you ended up after that? Yes.
1: I think I actually really loved those conversations I had with those startup CEOs and found them really life-giving and empowering. What I found disappointing was How many of those CEOs were, you know, had these great technologies, had these interesting ideas, had these perspectives that matched mine about where the industry needed to go, but they weren't finding success. They weren't reaching farmers. And that kind of was the genesis of of a lot of questions for me because I was like, wow, wow. This is globally advanced technology that these people are working on this, you know, whether it's the data software or the machinery or, you know, the genetics, like all of these tools are so advanced. And, and the things that these technologies could promise for a farmer could promise for a small business owner are truly revolutionary. And, and no one can figure out how to convince farmers that that's true. Like what, what is happening there? that like what, what is being lost in translation? I think we chalk it up to a lot to, to like Silicon Valley people just don't get rural America or just don't get farmers or American agriculture is a handshake business. And so it doesn't matter how good your technology is. If you don't have that personal relationship, it's not going to be successful. But to me, as someone who understood farmers, American farmers in particular, as like these advanced like business people, that didn't quite make sense because it seemed it doesn't matter how highly you value relationships. If like someone's offering you 10x return, how could you be ignoring that? Yeah.
0: So then you went to work actually in the ag tech space for a bit. Did you find answers to those questions? The first company I worked for
1: was called On Farm. It is no longer a company. Got to learn the number one rule of startups, which is that most of them fail. So I got laid off 11 months after I started there. And then I actually went to work for for a company that actually had a kind of similar technology, um, but was just doing it, frankly, like much much better. F- Farmers Business Network, who all they both had kind of agricultural management technologies, software management, and and that relied really heavily on data and data analysis. And yeah, I th- especially when I arrived at FBN, I think a lot of those questions were really at the top of people's minds. I think that they the organization was really driven by those questions. I mean that's that was my what the whole point of my job was basically to answer that question. How do you explain data to farmers? How do you make farmers not only understand what the data says, but understand that it's valuable, understand that it is a benefit to their bottom line, that it it is a part of kind of their business equation to understand how successful a seed is over you know not just over the the forty acres or two hundred acres or eight hundred acres that they planted it on, but having access to how that seed worked on 100,000 acres across the country with on soils like yours or in condi- under conditions like yours, you know, that was really valuable information that FBN had, even back when when I was working there, seed finder was which was their original data tool was all that they had. And I it, like I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is it, it seems so subtle and kind of obvious, but it, it was actually like really revolutionary information.
0: Totally. I, I'm curious if you, I mean, this is like the, the silver bullet question of, of ag tech. You, you obviously didn't stay at FBN forever and, and went on to other pursuits. I'm cur- like, Did that have to do with did not answering that question or not finding a satisfying answer to that question? Yeah,
1: I think, and I don't mean this as any knock on FBN. I think that they, in a very rational business way, realized that there were easier things to convince farmers of lower cost points that they could, that they could access to, you know, at the end of the day, like FBN has investors that they have to respond to and they they have to create returns and they're always going to be under that pressure. Right. As far as, as long yeah. as they're a, they're a venture backed company and, and maybe a different, I, I was part of the marketing team, maybe a different marketing team, a different communications team could have found the silver bullet. Like you said, I don't really think that we did. And I think that FBN, you know, today FBN has, FBN Direct and and does kind of a big procurement business and and provides kind of access to a whole range of of kind of marketplace items and that's that's very different from that original product right of just trying to share networked data with farmers that provided them information that was valuable to their business that would help them make decisions i think you know, when I first started in ag tech, decision agriculture as like a take on precision agriculture was like a, a buzzword that people were excited about because it was like, oh my gosh, we've, we've solved it. We figured out how to make data matter to farmers. You do it by turning it into decisions. But we, we tried that. None of that worked. None of that was interesting to farmers in a meaningful way. It was like, yes, I, I understand what's happening in the data. It's not that I'm confused. Like I'm interested and that's all. Like, I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust my experience on my field more. I'm going to trust my seed dealer more. I'm going to like the, the information is interesting, but, but it's not enough to make me change my mind about anything. And it's like, okay, to me, that was a fundamental, just like misalignment of like, okay, if a hundred thousand acres worth of anonymized data on your seed that tells you that's the wrong seed for that soil isn't enough to convince you to not waste the money then
0: like I don't know what is. That seems to be the end of the road for that discussion. (laughs) It also ended up being the end of the road for Sarah in ag tech, at least for now. She felt like she was putting too much time and energy into something that just wasn't working. So she returned to Washington, D.C. to report on the Trump administration for rural America. And this gave her a chance to understand the American ag system and its incentives, including farm policies and legislation from a whole new angle the
1: reason why farmers don't respond directly to economic ex- incentives is because there's other kinds of economic incentives like s- farm subsidies or, you know, risk management through the federal government. So I was like, okay, maybe I can go and learn how the farm bill works and learn how these, uh, these choices get made by covering the 2018 farm bill and, and dig into that process. And maybe then I'll understand what the incentives are and and what's really behind these decisions for farmers. And then maybe I'll have more insight on how to have conversations about how to really move the system forward. That isn't just like talking to a wall, which is what I felt like I was doing a lot of the times trying to convince farmers that that data matters.
0: And how did that go? Did that hypothesis prove itself out?
1: Um, no. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so The 2018 Farm Bill was a fascinating thing to watch. I went to Washington to cover a Farm Bill and ended up spending three years covering trade aid packages. The Farm Bill was basically irrelevant in the broader conversation. I almost, you know, if I was, if I talked to a farmer and could only ask them three questions, Farm Bill was going to be the third thing I asked about.
0: The Farm Bill, which happens every five years in the U.S., sets out the food and farm programs, including food security, risk management programs, and funding for innovation. It's usually number one on the agenda for farmers when it's being debated. But at the time, free trade agreements were on the line and very much in focus.
1: We almost scrapped NAFTA in a day, which was insanity. And then we did enter into a trade war with China and I'm sure most people listening maybe know this, but, you know, 60% of U.S. soybeans are are destined, are planted essentially for China. You know, one in every third row uh, in the United States. China is the market that everyone has been talking about for 15, 20 years at least. Uh, And the idea that that was, let alone, I mean, and China is still, even now, kind of a, a, other than in soybeans maybe, it's still kind of a future market, you know, Mexico and Canada are our number one trading partners in most agricultural products right now. So the fact that all of that was up, you know, potentially being out the window at the same time was, I think, a, a very scary time for markets. When U.S. pork producers are talking about how if NAFTA goes away, pork producers will lose $56 a pig, the idea that like a, a risk mitigation program in the farm bill that's going to, you know, net a few dollars a pig is just like, it's just not relevant to the conversation that is happening ongoing.
0: It kind of, it actually kind of goes to your tagline or or kind of description on Twitter with like making windows in the walls around farming, rural food and ag with a rusty spoon, not a cheerleader, not the enemy. Tell tell me about that phrase and does it like how, how it kind of came
1: to be? Sure. I'll start with the second part. So not a cheerleader, not the enemy. I think I've never worked for an ag media organization that did not at some point refer to themselves as a cheerleader for the industry. Like, you know, we're like we believe in American agriculture. We like this is the right thing. Like we're cheerleaders. We try to avoid overtly negative stories and we try to have positive stories as much as we can. And again, I've I've in all of the reporting and and all of the different places I've worked in ag, I don't think that that is an uncommon sentiment anywhere. And I don't think there's an understanding of how strange that is for media organizations to think. Tell me more about that. So media is not about promotion. Journalism in the public interest is not about promoting the the efforts of, of in a, like an economically viable or group organization or group of organizations. It's just like not what it's for. It's to inform the public. It's to inform the people involved. I think in ag and maybe more than other places, like, you know, I think there's been a bit of confusion about our farmers, you know, consumers or our farmers businesses. And I think obviously you could very easily say both. But I think that I don't know, we've we've created a very complex situation in in our media environment where I think it's really hard to come by ag media that that doesn't think of itself as very as part of an ecosystem that needs to like self-perpetuate. And by self-perpetuating it, it entrenches like a specific group of people and businesses and doesn't think it is a negative that it is negative that they are by doing that, you know, excluding whole enormous other groups or possibilities or options.
0: So that's not a cheerleader perspective. I mean, I guess the the phrase that came to mind was like speaking truth to power. Even just questioning things like a lot of ag media and a lot of ag conversations end up in a black and white, right and wrong, in or out kind of framing, which has definitely been my experience. And I've been like drowning in the gray area in between trying to make sense of it all. I don't know if that resonates for you, but the phrase like speaking truth to power sort of seems absent in a nuanced, effective way. It's just like black or white conversations all over the place.
1: Totally. Well, and it's not even just, it's not even just truth to power. It's just truth, period. (laughs) I've made this comment on Twitter recently. Agriculture is, in the U.S., is very attached to the idea that we have to tell our story in a very specific way so that people understand. That's called spinning a story, you should be able to just tell the truth and that's the truth and that's the end. Like that you don't have to show a face. Like authenticity is important. When you tell the truth, people say like, why are you being so negative? Why are you like, why, why would you say it like that? Because you know that disadvantages us to say it like that. And it's like, I I don't know how to tell you that. Like the truth doesn't ever disadvantage people. (laughs)
0: The pushback would be that, like, especially when it comes to food, there are things that consumers don't want to know, whether it's, like, death of animals or, you know, culling invasive species or spraying chemical, like, whatever it is, there's stuff that consumers don't want to know. And so the argument is, like, don't show that stuff, even if it's true because it it makes us look bad. But what's your response to that argument? So so
1: this is, like, a fundamental misunderstanding alignment of our priorities in agriculture, right? Why don't your customers want to know about the, like the, your, your like treatment of animals or the way that we, you know, treat, chemically treat plants or animals, any of those things, like, sure, there's probably a way to spin them to pretend like it's not happening. But like, if consumers have a problem with them, why don't you address the problem? Why don't you give consumers what they want? You sell a product and you can just give it to people, you don't have to fight them and convince them that what you already have is what they want. I was talking to a farmer recently actually about this exact thing where he, you know, has been on an, has been on a couple of active trade missions to Europe recently. And what American trade missions to Europe look like is basically just U.S. trade officials trying to badger Europeans into giving up resistance to GMOs. (laughs) But his like from his perspective as a young farmer, who's who's interested in who wants to be organic and who wants to explore these other things and who wants to get not the commodity price for his crops. He's like, I don't know, like I have a business background and like where I come from, we don't tell consumers what they want. We give them what they want. Like we don't convince them to buy what we have. We make what they want. And it's just like, sure, you can, you can market and you can change the, you can try and like shape the story so that you can do the easiest thing or the cheapest thing and, and just hope your consumers never realize how you're cutting corners. Or you can just give them what they want. Businesses yeah. sell things to people and sell them what they want. They don't try to hoodwink them into buying what they have so that they don't have to do better. And I think that we don't, in agriculture, there's a an aversion to that flip of the power dynamic, I think as producers, and and paradoxically, I think this comes from the fact that producers often feel very disadvantaged in the market.
0: Your point that you've made recently, and, and, and even goes to the point of like, don't ask the question, like you didn't grow up on a farm or you didn't grow up on a real farm or a big enough farm or whatever, which is is pushback I get as well as someone who had a hobby farm, but but not a, a quote unquote real farm, whatever that means. But your point is that like, we pay taxes. And so we get to say also like you can learn things about an industry and still have an opinion. Yeah. The, you don't know agriculture, so you don't get to get to have
1: an opinion is like obvious gatekeeping. And that's just, we, I don't know. It's 2020, like check the internet that that's a frowned upon activity. Like, I guess you can try it, but I think we've, we've moved past it. So just like, you don't get to pick who gets to talk everyone gets to talk like, sorry. Um, especially again, yeah, to your point, especially if taxpayers just paid $60 billion over the last three years. You know, if this was an investment situation, I would now, we, we would all now be shareholders. We would now all own equity in your business. We would get a representative board seat, one would assume. We would have a direct say. So at the very least, you cannot shut people down on Twitter. You should be taking much more direct feedback from them, given that they are, you know, underwriting your business at the moment. But. Um, to the other half of that question. <sighs> okay. I guess I would say if it's really the best way to do it right now and you've tried to explain it and it's not getting through to people or, or people still doubt you, then change it. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. If, if Apple said uh, like child, child factory labor is the best way for us to do it right now. I don't know if that's a good example, but like, like, I don't know, like, I, it's just like not a good excuse that like your customer doesn't want it done that way.
0: You also in your, um, your profile, you know, not the enemy. So you obviously are incredibly passionate about agriculture and the future of agriculture. And I, I guess, tell me about the, is there anything there beyond yes. not the enemy of, of passion about the industry and, and curious about the making windows part as well?
1: Yes. So the not the enemy part is very much, you know, I don't know why I keep coming back to ag. It's really an exclusive space. It wants to shut out people who don't agree. It doesn't really create a lot of opportunities for, for alternative modes of thinking, let alone alternative modes of thinking, like from people who are not middle-aged white men. I left the farm as a kid thinking I was never going to come back to agriculture for a reason. And very, at various points along my career, I've thought like this industry isn't safe for me. This industry isn't, you know, isn't right for me. I could do, I could be so much more successful. I could do so many other things. I could make more money. I could be happier. I could work less. I could do other things if I just left ag and I haven't been able to do it. Like this is my home. I grew up here. These people raised me. I, I grew up, you know, some of my most important moments in, in middle school and high school, we're doing FFA and 4-H. You know, I think one of the most important lessons talking about, you know, lessons I learned abroad was that you can be the most impactful place you will ever work is in the community that raised you because you understand the, the politics and the incentives and the motivations inherently because you grew up in them. And you can't, they can't ever like fully kick you out. But I've kind of also, I think fallen in love with it. They don't think you can really know a thing and learn a thing, you know, become an expert in a space without loving it. But I think you can't become an expert in a space or really know a space without also seeing all the horrible things that are happening there too, right? You have to know the truth. That's how you love something. And I think that's I, that's the, the line, not, the che- not a cheerleader, not the enemy is all about that for me. Like the, the reason I want to have these conversations, the reasons I talk about this in public, in my writing, on Twitter, wherever, is not because I hate ag or farmers or, you know, corn or whatever I'm talking about on a given day. It's because I love it. And so I just think that there's so much more freedom and so much more mobility and so much more opportunity and potential for prosperity. If we just are more open about the realities, we talk in ag a lot about why people don't understand enough about farming or why people don't, you know, why we have to talk, tell the story of American agriculture so much. And like, it just doesn't seem like it's occurred to enough people maybe that, maybe it's because like we're not telling the authentic story and it's not because consumers are stupid that they don't understand. It's because they know a a fake story when they hear one and they don't buy it and they are looking for something like grittier and more real, something that
0: feels intuitively right. One of my favorite tweets of yours recently was, if you think that cropping decisions are primarily driven by what's best for the land and not almost exclusively influenced by existing infrastructure equipment skills preferences then we have fundamentally different understandings of incentives (laughs) which I love because it's it gets at exactly your point of that gritty like this is why we're making the decisions and it's not necessarily perfect but we've invested in this combine or we've invested in this shed or we've invested in whatever or we like doing it this way and this is why I'm doing it and I'm open to the conversation or open to the research technology innovation potential to change it but it's not this like we're doing it because it's best now leave me alone um yes. argument that gets thrown out there that's that's pretty transparent
1: totally we'll see and that's this is like the whole thing and to to your other question from long ago um that i promise i will answer the the <laughs> making holes in the walls around agriculture that's a thing people just people don't want to tell you what to do they don't want to tell you how to farm they don't know they know that they don't know they just want to talk to you about it. They want to have a real conversation. They want you to know that they don't like that you're spraying chemicals on your crops. They want to hear that you're thinking about how you're going to stop doing that. I think we have such a focus in American agriculture. And I mean, it's obvious in just the way that people introduce themselves. I'm I'm Joe Farmer and I'm a fifth generation farmer. Like the fact that your title is basically your legacy is just like, right, we, we put, we're telling you that you're most valuable because of, of your, of things that have happened in the past. But why, why is that true? I, you know, when I talk to farmers, I want to hear about what you're, what you're gonna do. I want to hear about your contribution. I don't want to know about what people did four generations ago. What they did back then is not relevant anymore to what's happening now.
0: But, it's ironic too, because in any other industry, can you imagine being like I'm a fourth generation investment banker? People would be like, oh, "Cool, no. I never want to talk to you again." <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's just it, yeah, it is pretty ironic. And bar- and I get it. Like we've taken if if the sentiment is my family has taken care of this land for that long, and look how you know sustainable our operation is, and here's what our plan is for the future. Totally open to that conversation. How has it changed? Yeah. What practices have changed? Love it. But the yeah, the kind of credibility that comes from that just. On face value, doesn't doesn't stack up for me either.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's and I think that comes down to you know if you want to kind of sum up all the conversations I've had on Twitter recently, I feel like the the fact of them in a weird kind of meta analysis way, the fact of them is the perfect illustration of the problem. (laughs) Like the problem is that no one's allowed to talk. That like if someone points out something true or not, debatable or not, the answer is we have to mobilize to shut them down. It's not like let's have a constructive conversation with them, it wasn't even, let's see if we can contact this person offline, and, and, like, see if there's, like, an opportunity for a more intimate conversation to gain feedback or, or, you know, understand how this person is, where their concept of
0: the world is coming from. How does all of that make you feel, like, you say it with a bit of a laugh in your voice? And I know, I, I imagine some of it's pretty amusing, but I can't imagine it always feels good. Yeah, um, it definitely, I
1: have a really great community of people around me who support me and, you know, who have similar ideas about agriculture. And I'm really lucky to have found them because I would not be here anymore without them. People like Sarah Tabor, people like Chris Newman are online, offline, in real life, on social media, there to support me publicly, support me privately, and more importantly, have just like shaped my Thinking in in a really powerful way, in a really constructive way, right? And it, like all of these recommendations that I could make to farmers about, like you know, where you could have, where this conversation could have gone, where I, you know we could have reached common ground, and you could have illustrated the power of your idea by persuasion and not through like an act of force. Like I know that that's possible because. Th- people have done that to me before, right? Like at all the experiences and ideas that I have in, or all the ideas that I have in agriculture have come to me from farmers and ex-farmers. These aren't things that I'm like making up or like, like th- these are thoughts that I've heard from people in the industry. And I think one of the things I mentioned recently before I left Twitter was, you know, for every farmer who was in my sub tweets telling me I was wrong, there were five in my DMs telling me I had it exactly right. So that was, that was like fine to me because- I, you know i think there was a lot of other things happening on twitter too i think you know masculinity and misogyny in agriculture is really problematic in a lot of ways and i think for better or worse like that's been a reality of my career so far and i've found various ways to to deal with that mentally and emotionally
0: so it affects me less are there any examples of that that you're willing to share
1: you know it's like the little moments like being at ag conferences where you're standing, talking to a farmer you've talked to, I've talked to, I am standing with a farmer talking, talking with them, you know, a farmer that I've talked to a a hundred times, you know, I've had phone conversations with, have had a long professional relationship with, and then they like, "Hmm," suddenly things become very intimate. And it's like, oh God, I don't know how to extricate myself from this. And like, what, you know, and then, like, you receive comments from other farmers, and it becomes this whole thing where it's like, oh, I'm just an object in this, in this world. So, like, am I even a person here?
0: As you can hear, Sarah is not afraid to call out injustices. Recently, she wrote a piece asking the question, is it possible to farm without exploitation? Her conclusion was no, that modern farming exploits the land because it takes something from the environment and the people, workers, but also farmers and their families, without sufficient compensation. I guess I will
1: say at the top exploitation, you know, the technical definition is just like to use something to its fullest extent. I don't think that that's, you know, the connotation of exploitation is that, you know, overuse, abusive use, someone being forced to to make a sacrifice that they feel like they don't have a choice not to make. And I think we, especially in the regenerative ag space, which is a space I'm really interested in and, and have enjoyed working in and have found a lot of kind of kindred spirits in, Even there, I think there's a really exploitative vein that we haven't, that people aren't super comfortable talking about. I think, for example, I think one of the most important things for me in writing that story and in doing that work around exploitation is just the way that we exploit people in agriculture. I mean, I think there's obvious examples of how we exploit farm workers, uh, especially in the United States, but truly all over the world and throughout pretty much all of time, agricultural labor has been pretty exploited. But, you know, I think things that we almost wear as like a badge of honor, you know, the number of young farmers I know who are working 70 or 80 hours a week and don't draw a salary, that's labor exploitation. I think there's like a, a an argument to be made around like the cost of entrepreneurship and the benefits of building a business in the long term. But the reality is like a lot of those farmers I know who are doing that aren't going to make, aren't going to have a business that can exit. They're not going to gain a bunch of income at the end of their career when they sell a business. And so they're never going to get compensated for that labor. Free labor is, is, is exploitation. Like that's what that is. And I think, you know, we exploit all the people in agricultural systems, whether it's, whether it's, you know, the farmers, whether it's the people, whether, or whether it's the workers, whether it's people adjacent to farmers, like their families, and i think the core of that is we always overutilize resources we undervalue and there's an underlying assumption in agriculture that because of an obsession with bottom line thinking that you know prices in agriculture are always given and that there's nothing you can do about it all you can do is control your bottom line control your expenses because labor is such a high cost item on balance sheets is just to as long as you just don't care about it you can pay nothing for it you can pay very little for it you can certainly pay below market for it you know, whether that's your labor you're paying below market for, whether it's like a farm wife's labor who spends dozens of hours a month doing the books for no compensation, whether it's farm kids, farm kids, like do a lot of labor that they never get compensated for, you know, farm workers. It just, yeah, there's there's just a lot of exploitation in agriculture that we don't want to talk about because we chalk it up to this idea of like, well, you know, there's lifestyle benefits and there's independence and self-reliance and, and people just love the labor and, and it's fine. It's a labor of love. So they're happy to do it. And I don't know that, that how many baseball, how how many of your kids' baseball games were you happy to miss because you just love farming so much? And so like, I think that exploitation question, it's, it's provocative and people really didn't like to hear about it, to be (laughs) honest. And I got plenty of comments about how I was like totally off base and completely wrong. And agriculture is not inherently exploitative, but but the reality is, like, there's evidence everywhere that that fundamentally we undervalue ag labor, and I think that's really hard to argue against. And like, my perception is that, like, again, that that emanates outwards in every direction. And you know what? I think there's a a really good question to be asked about, like, whether that's inherent. To, whether that's inherent. Whether like maybe the answer is agriculture just is exploitative, and and we can't help it. And Maybe, like, you know, that's a reality of being a human being on Earth whose, like, one job is to feed yourself and not die. But, like, if that's the case, if there's no way for us to, you know, be, quote-unquote, sustainable, let alone regenerative, then we should know that and confront that reality. And it allows us to ask important questions around ideas like regenerative, where we pretend like, oh, we're not only going to feed ourselves and everyone really well and save the world from climate change, Like, is that actually possible? I don't know. It is a good, like, is it actually even possible for the people involved? Seems like a good place to start asking that question. And like, as far as I've seen on regenerative farms that I know, the equation around labor is no different than on any other farm I've been on. It's just as extractive of the people who do the work. And like, if you haven't solved that problem, I don't really think you've solved anything.
0: It goes back to your, I mean, kind of not the cheerleader, not the enemy. And, and also just the the windows aspect of like, these are subtle arguments that have two sides. And, and I don't sense that you're saying they're not. You're just saying there are some oh, big no. questions here that we need to ask and answer. Yeah, totally. I, I,
1: I do feel... Sad, I guess, sometimes to realize that most people read what I write wherever they read it and think that I like must hate agriculture or that I hate rural or that I don't believe it's inherently valuable because it's that's not true. But I think it like that in and of itself that like reading someone asking a question feels like hate that that like is the problem. The problem is we've created a system that. So it so lacks resilience that in questioning it, you threaten its stabi- its fundamental stability. That's not good. <laughs> like good, good things, good ideas, good people can take some questioning. They can take, you know, it's, it's, they can roll with punches. They can adapt and survive. Something that is so fragile that it can't survive. You wondering. Something about it—it's—it's it's not what you think it is. It's not a fortress, uh, this like stronghold of of idealism. It's a house
0: of cards. It kind of leads, I guess, to your journey of looking at different leverage points to be involved in and potentially change or, or question the system. Your latest one is now not only not on Twitter, but also going out independently and writing a book. What's your kind of view of? this path as a leverage point and why have you chosen it as the latest one sure
1: i am a book nerd myself i love books i always have i always wanted to write a book which is a it's just a weird thing to say these days because now i'm writing a book and it sucks <laughs> <laughs> what i decided was you know the thing that rubs me wrong these days about people who write about ag is that I don't ever want to be the kind of, and, and this is uh, has always been a struggle for me in journalism, and maybe it's because I didn't go to journalism school and I come from kind of more of the business side, but I don't ever want to be someone who's writing about other people's ideas and not trying them. I want to put my money where my mouth is and vice versa. You know, the book I'm writing is kind of the, the lean startup of of agriculture. You know, me, smart ass, if I could build the farm business that I think would be the most successful, what would it look like? And, you know, who would I talk to and how would I inform my decision-making? You know, that's what this book is, It's me trying to do that. And then I am very blessed and lucky to get to work with, you know, I'm actually working with a couple of farmers across the country right now to actually try and implement some of the practices that I'm working on. Most strongly I work with Sylvan Aqua Farms in rural Virginia, and get to work you know i am an active part of that or that operation and you know have get to not just be talking and researching and learning about how to organize farm businesses and what the challenges are i want it to be a beacon to help me find other people who share these ideas i mean the biggest group of people that i've talked to that um like my ideas, I think are disaffected, former farmers, uh, people who have left ag either failed out or, or left it because it was unsustainable for them. And I think that group of people like, yeah, talk about terrible marketing on my part, because what a tiny group of people it is, but you know, they, they did, they did everything they were supposed to do. They were told that In America, small family farms can make it work and communities will rally around you. Like, you know, farming is possible in America. It's possible to be a new and beginning or a young farmer. And when people find that there's like so much more to the story than that, I think that is the most impactful moment to find them and be like, right? Those are people who are actually like distant enough from the fantasy to be open to hearing that, you know, the fantasy isn't the full story. And I love those people because I feel very much like that, the a part of that refugee group, so to say, of people who have worked on farms or lived on farms but do not any longer. I, in a lot of ways, like feel like I owe it to those people and I owe it to everyone who has ever been excluded from a conversation in agriculture or who has ever been told that they didn't get to have a say or that their opinion didn't matter or that you know that they, they should just like buy the product that they were offered and and not worry about it those are the those are the people I'm I'm trying to have a conversation with in the book and and elsewhere in the world and yeah, it's it's meaningful work. It's work worth doing. I'm not going to do it forever. And I'm after the book is done, I'm going to take all my ideas and I'm going to try and make them work. And you know what? If they don't, I guess in like 25 years, I'll write a book about how I was all wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it for another episode of Ag Tech So What? If you're interested in Sarah Mock's book, pre-orders will be available soon. And in the meantime, you can follow her on Twitter and check out her writing on Medium. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and tell your friends. I'm Sarah Nollette. Catch you next time.